following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me to Mark chapter 7, and we're going to start in verse 31. So we're continuing this week in our series focused on the miracles of Jesus. Jesus said in John 14 that if you have seen him, you have seen the Father. And so by studying these accounts, we're learning a lot about who God is and what he is about. We also have the opportunity to learn about ourselves and how it is we should approach our creator as we see people of all different walks of life coming to Jesus and expressing their need for his help. So this week, we're going to see Jesus traveling through the region of Decapolis. This is a grouping of 10 cities. It was mostly inhabited by Gentiles. Uh, There's been much musing and conjecture about the purpose of this seemingly wide detour. If you took a look at a map and kind of tracked where Jesus was traveling, the fact that he took this bend uh, north, uh, it seems like kind of maybe out of character or, or abnormal for some reason, but the text really doesn't give us a clear reason why the Lord does this, Uh, but suffice it to say that Jesus had a purpose for every step he took and every word he spoke. So we'll just work off of that premise, okay? So I hope you're in Mark 7. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you today, uh, we will have the scriptures on the screens. If you don't own a Bible, please let us know. We would really like to give you one. Uh, No strings attached, okay? Mark 7, starting in verse 31. Here we go. Again, he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. They brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hand on him. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva. And he looked up to heaven, and with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was removed. And he began speaking plainly. And he gave them orders not to tell anyone, but the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. They were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Praise God for his word. Amen. So let's start back at the beginning. Uh, We'll start at verse 32. 31 is just kind of a description of of where he's at. We already talked about that. So uh, in verse 32, here we see again people interceding for others and bringing people to Jesus, right? Uh, How does it say it? It says, they brought to him one who was deaf. So this guy had friends, this guy had co-patriots that were with him and that were helping get him to Jesus. And and it's interesting, if you go through and look at all the miracles Jesus performed, it, it really is striking. How many were because someone came to Jesus Asking on behalf of someone else. I mean, think about even the ones we've covered in this series, right? You've got the centurion's servant. It was the centurion coming on behalf of the servant, right? You've got the four guys uh, lowering their friend down in front of Jesus, right? And so over and over again, if you really think about it, sure, there was times where Jesus encountered the person themselves. You've got the, the guy at the pool of Bethesda comes to mind. You've got um, the, the woman with the issue of blood. And so you, you have that sprinkled in there, but um, maybe, maybe half or more. Of the times that Jesus was moved to be compassionate on somebody and to grant them a miracle, somebody else was interceding, somebody else was involved. And I think out of that, it would be a healthy and helpful exercise to take an inventory of our prayers. 
How many of the prayers that we bring to God are simply praise to him, first of all, without a request? And then moving on from there, how many prayers are a request on the behalf of others? And then how many are requests for ourselves? I think it would be helpful and healthy for us to stop and really pay attention to that. Uh, it's probably a good idea just to think about how often we're praying, period, uh, maybe sometimes, but that's not the point. Uh, verse 33, uh, it says it, that, that it, he took him aside. And um, it says Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself, put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, Touched his tongue with the saliva. So he took him aside. That's one of the first peculiarities about the way Jesus does this miracle. Uh, he kind of shuffles the guy off away from the crowd. Uh, and and this, brings, this verse brings some questions to mind, right? Like, first of all, why did, why did Jesus pull him aside? Uh, why did Jesus effectively wet willy him, right? Why did Jesus swap spit with him, right? I mean, I don't know if you understand. The language is a little bit weird, but basically he spit on his finger and touched the guy's tongue. Okay, that's how this went down. And honestly, I'm so glad Jesus rolled with the authority that he did. He didn't even ask this guy if, if he was cool with what was about to happen, right? It, there was no warning. It just started going down. Um, and and I, honestly, I could see some of us, right, if Jesus had, say he comes to us and, and explains, you know, how this miracle was going to go down. Some of us I could see going you know what, sign language is actually kind of cool. I, I think I'll just learn that instead. Because uh, if what I need to have happen here is get wet willied and swap spit, I'm not really open for that. Um, there's, some, there's some commentaries that talk about um, ideas in the day of saliva having healing properties, and it could be something to do with that. And, and maybe Jesus is trying to meet this guy where he was at and as far as his faith is concerned. But we just don't have enough in the text to, to venture too far into that with any kind of confidence. Uh, and there has been much ink spilled on the meaning behind the unique details of how Jesus deals with this man. But the simplest and, and the most straightforward answer seems to be the most plausible, uh, I'll say to me anyways. Uh, and I think to take him off to the side, perhaps, was to say to him, no longer are you going to be a spectacle. This is not going to be something that I'm going to use to promote myself or to convince people of anything. You can imagine a man... Uh, being deaf and, and having this speech impediment all of his life probably felt uh, like an uncomfortable center of attention, uh, ostracized, and it could be very much that in Jesus' compassion, he took him off to the side to deal with him in this way. And uh, it's, it's quite likely that, that, that the rest of the things, the fingers in the ears and the, the spit on the tongue, in some way was just a special compassion and a mercy from Jesus to this man. There have been those that have thought perhaps that had something to do with maybe some, some sign language happening for Jesus to kind of communicate to him as he was deaf and unable to speak. But again, we don't have enough there for that. But clearly, Jesus knew something about what was going on inside this man, and there was a reason why he did this this way with him, because we don't see that repeated. Only one guy got wet willied by Jesus. Uh, it was this fella. So... <laughs> uh, you know, hallelujah. I mean, if, that's, if, if Jesus wants to what with me, he can do it anytime he wants. I'm just saying I'm open to whatever he's got. But uh, I, I hope, honestly, as you hear this, that you are touched and encouraged by the dual reality of God's supreme sovereignty over all things, while at the same time, his compassionate knowledge of the small details of your life and, and a willingness to meet you right where you're at. I hope 
that you draw strength and encouragement from that today, that that's the kind of God that we're serving. Um, it's, it's really a precious truth. So verse 34, we're going to break into two pieces. We're going to deal with the first half, and then the second half couples with verse 35. Um, it makes more sense that way. So in verse 34, we see, uh, it says, And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh. Okay, That's, we're going to stop there. So this deep sigh, what is this? Here we see a real example of God's ability and willingness to empathize with our struggling and our suffering. And friends, this is one of the mysterious and wondrous beauties of the incarnation. The fact that Jesus, in a way that is beyond our ability to completely understand or articulate, he remained fully God while also taking on fully the nature of man. Jesus understands the frailty and the difficulty of humanity. And he experienced the pain of a world broken and ravaged by sin. And what this means is that Jesus did not just sympathize with this man's suffering, but he was able to empathize with him as well. And if you're not familiar with the difference, the difference there is sympathy would be to say, I am sorry that you are hurting. Empathy would be to say, I am hurting because you are hurting. To empathize is to understand and to a degree even feel the pain of others. And empathy is a godly attribute. It's something we should seek to walk in as light-bearing ambassadors for Christ in a world that is dark and difficult to navigate. Romans 12.15 instructs us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. That's not possible with a, a simple posture of sympathy. It takes empathy to do that. And some of us, if we're honest, we really struggle with this. And and we should all pray that by the power of the Spirit, we would be able to see through the eyes and to be able to hear through the ears of others, to be able to understand and to seek to listen well. That's true. But as with every good gift of God, our enemy can twist and distort empathy into a toxic and destructive force. For some... They have a strong God-given inclination towards empathy. When I said earlier, some of us need to pray and get some help with having empathy, you don't understand that at all. That is not your struggle. Because for some, they have a very strong God-given gift and inclination towards empathy. But the reality is this can be used by the enemy to cripple them spiritually and emotionally. There are some who feel every hurt or offense or perceived injustice against others. They feel it so deeply that sometimes they end up more negatively affected than the person who actually has the issue. They get drug into a place of darkness and despair that's even deeper than the one the person that they're caring about is in. I, I, I saw an example of this in, in, in more of a silly way. Uh, one time we, we were on a camping trip. There was a bunch of us, and uh, we... we hiked a trail and we were ignorant. I don't think we checked a map first. We just said, oh, here's a trail and off we went, right? So we decided, I'm sure it'll loop around at some point. So don't do that. It's a bad idea. So we hike and hike and hike and hike and, and, and it's, you know, it was more, you know, everyone thinks they're tough till, you know, two miles into the trail and then you find out how tough you're not. Um, so we ended up, we, we kind of went up and then, and then the trail brought us down. It brought us to a river and we could see 
the area where the campsite was, so we knew we were close, but there's a river between us. And we also know we had just done a ton of decline, and so if we turned around to go back, that meant we're going up. And nobody was really feeling it, right? So we had a little bit of a powwow there at the bottom. Not, you know, so our options are go back the way we came. It was longer than we thought, and it was going to start uphill, so nobody's really excited about that option. Or we try to cross this river. I mean, it's not the Mississippi, uh, but it was a significant flowing, you know, stream for sure. I mean, it wasn't a creek by any means. So we're kind of weighing our options, whatever. And I don't know if we, I can't remember if we took a group vote or I probably just started going. Everyone decided, well, here we go. So, I mean, I don't remember how that happened. But anyways, we all, we're all in the water. We're trying to hold electronics up and it got about, I don't know, that deep on me. And it was, you had to pay attention to what you're doing. And so we're making it across. Hallelujah. Here we go. And somebody thought they were funny. I don't know. I don't remember who, I really don't remember who it was, but they, they, they go, snake! There was no snake. But, so somebody's just trying to, be, you know, try to tell a joke here, be funny. And uh, for, for somebody that was with us, one of the ladies that was with us, that, that was not only not funny, it was terrifying because it tapped into uh, a deep-seated fear of snakes. And so uh, she was rather upset. Um, at first, just because, you know, like it wasn't clear at first that it was a joke. So First of all, it was somebody yelled snake, and you see a lot of people start moving a lot faster, right? So that happened, but then we get to the other side, and it, it turns out that somebody was just kind of, you know, being a ding-a-ling, and so the, the lady that was afraid of the snakes, was she was shook up for a minute and not necessarily so happy with the person that said snake, but, it, you know, it was over in a few minutes. Several hours later, I saw another person that was with us uh, sitting down on a rock looking rather grumpy. And I went and talked to them, and I said, so, you know, hey, what's going on? And they were, they were so angry and frustrated still at the person that said snake because of the, the perception they had of how that affected the, the person that was really scared of snakes. They were still upset about it. And even after talking to them and trying to pray with them through it and even talking about some of these principles, I, the, the whole rest of the day for sure, if not the whole rest of their trip, was ruined. They never, came, it never, it never, they never pulled the nose up on that. It took them to this place of just real frustration and anger, and, and, and it wasn't, they weren't even scared of snakes. It was, it was somebody else. And so uh, psychology and, and mental health professionals have begun writing about this issue as well in recent years. Uh, I'm going to read you an excerpt from a psychology, a psychology Today article about unhealthy or hyper-empathy. This was written in 2017. It says this, with empathy, you will feel... You will feel their stress, anxiety, and anger in your body. You might feel their pain emotionally and physically. If you let these emotions sit in your body, your body and mind can be emotionally hijacked. Unbridled empathy can lead to concentration of the stress hormone cortisol, making it difficult to release the emotions. Taking on other people's feelings so that you live their experience can make you susceptible to feelings of depression or hopelessness. Not only will this lead to burnout, you can break the bond of trust you were hoping to strengthen. When you embody other people's emotions, you may feel responsible for relieving their pain. You feel the need to fix their problems and make them feel better. The article went on to explain how that can actually be damaging to the relationship that you are trying to care for or the person. And so th this hyper-empathy, it can result from seeking to relate to someone uh, dealing with some sort of tragedy or loss, for sure, um, but in the church in particular, the enemy uses this tactic quite often to spread the poison of offense throughout the body. 
Uh, when someone confides in us that they have been hurt by the action or inaction of someone else, we should seek to understand and listen well. That is part of our job as Christians. We, we should be walking in that gift of healthy empathy. But we must also have the love and courage to point them to a humble view of their own imperfection and a gospel-shaped approach towards dealing with the issue. What we can't do is jump in and take on their offense, being drugged into sin ourselves, while also perhaps unintentionally reinforcing sinful attitudes in the person that we're trying to help. Uh, I realize that this is not uh, tambourine amen material, but it's really good stuff for us to consider. It's really helpful because this is not a small issue, um, and it's not one that only a few people deal with. This whole idea of healthy empathy, I think Jesus models this well for us here because he was able to feel the anguish of this man's disability. That's, That's what the heavy sigh is about. He felt it, and he felt all the years of suffering that this man had endured because the world has been broken by sin. Jesus felt it, but relating to this man on that level, it did not cast Jesus into an overwhelming despair or sense of hopelessness. It moved him instead to point that man towards the only true source of hope and healing, which is the way godly empathy is done. And it's only possible with the help of the Spirit. Now, you might be thinking, what do I mean that he pointed him to the true source of hope and healing? Where do I see that? Let me, let me read you the verse again. And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh. Friends, he looked up. Jesus looked up. Remember, this guy is deaf and doesn't speak real well. And so every action Jesus is doing, that guy's going to be keyed in on. And what does Jesus do first? He looks up. He looks up where our help comes from. Because it, be, and that's because it is there. <laughs> it is there that we actually can look to something where there, there's, there's an answer to be brought. Looking around or looking down, it's only going to drag us into further downcast and discouragement. Friends, When you are struggling or walking with others through whatever difficulty may come, look up and point them to look to our holy creator and our faithful sustainer. That's empathy done well. Don't don't offer people canned answers. Don't pull back to the point where you just assume you hear what they're saying and then start rattling off your top three suggestions. Listen, care. Let yourself feel it, but, but there's a line, there's a place where that has to stop, where you can't take it on to the degree that you're drug into a darkness and a downcast depression yourself where you're now unable to help and possibly being drug into sin yourself. We need to look up because it is there we will see hope for every sorrow and we will see the promise of justice for every wrong. But we will also, when we look up, we will see our need for grace and we will be humbled as our imperfect feelings and opinions are contrasted with his magnificent holiness. Because we need that oftentimes. Even in the midst of struggle, and many times and for sure in the midst of offense, we need to be humbled. We need to see that our opinions and feelings are not coming from a perfect perspective. And that means there's always room for me to understand there's probably something else to this. Amen. So that brings us to the second half of verse 34 and 35. So let's read that together. He said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking 
plainly. So thus far, we have seen the personal and empathetic compassion of Jesus on display as he heals this man. We've seen the power of God to undo the ravaging destruction of sin in the world. And it is good and it is proper for us to draw strength and encouragement from these things. But they are not the ultimate point of what Jesus was doing in his ministry. Jesus says himself earlier in Mark that he came to preach repentance in the kingdom of God to point us to the final reality of redemption so that our greatest hope would always be placed in his gospel and the unshakable eternal beauty of reconciled relationship with him. Now, throughout this series, the other brothers who have preached and I, we've endeavored to show you how every single miracle Jesus performed is pointing to this ultimate redemptive reality. And the healing of this deaf and mute man is no different. And we begin, we begin to see this message under the miracle as we consider this phrase. When Jesus says, Ephatha, which means be opened. I'm going to read something to you from Acts 16, 13 through 14, because this language of being opened, it, there's an echo. Acts 16, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. For those who have been saved by God's grace, we have all had Ephatha declared over us. And for those who have not, this is desperately what you need. Be opened. We must be opened. We see this as well in language that Jesus uses often. We'll see it um, in, in the way that Matthew records Jesus speaking. We also see it uh, in Revelation constantly. When Jesus is talking, he uses this language of, He who has ears, let him hear. He who has ears, let him hear. And in addition to that, we, we need our tongues loosed like this man to declare our need for Jesus and to preach the good news to others. Now, I understand that you may be someone, and, and, that's, and it's fine, because honestly, there is, <sighs> there's so much minutia and distraction surrounding um, the Bible and its teaching that, that for someone to be saying to you, every single miracle of Jesus, what we should be looking for is the message under the message. Uh, that could seem extreme. That could seem like a single voter issue type thing or hobby horse. Um, and maybe you're someone that isn't sure that the Bible being all about Jesus, um, maybe you're not sure about that yet. You know, seems like there's a lot of other things going on. Maybe this connection that I'm trying to show you to our ears being opened to hear the gospel and our tongues being loosed to declare our need for Jesus, maybe it seems like a stretch. Maybe it seems like there's not um, as much of a, a gospel connection to this miracle, and I'm just looking for one. I'm, I just want to make sure we, we try to make something happen here. But what I want to do is I want to show you a treasure buried just beneath the surface of this text to help reassure us that viewing all of Scripture through the lens of the glorious and redemptive work of God in Christ is absolutely the right lens 
to look through. Before I do that, I'm going to push a step further. Honestly, I want to caution you even because there is so much Bible teaching available today through technology, which is a blessing, by the way. I am so thankful. I think God has put all of us in the time and place he has and given us the tools he's given us for in in our day, in our time, to accomplish the mission of getting the gospel to the world. And and I'm thankful for all the technology allows. But there's a flip side to that. And we need to have discerning ears and discerning hearts. Because if a sermon is being preached from God's word, if that's what is being proposed to, supposed to be happening, it is never okay to just stop at the surface and gain inspiration and encouragement or even hope from the text at just that surface level. If we just stopped here and said, yeah, well, we can see that Jesus cares about us and Jesus has the power to deal with deafness and muteness, uh, so that means he can help you in your life with whatever you have going on. Have a nice week. I, I mean, I heard a chuckle or two out there, but that's not that uncommon, unfortunately. The, the reality is the Bible is one story made up of many stories, and they all tie together, and the point of all of it is to lead us to understand our need for repentance and redemption through the blood of Jesus and to point us to our future hope in him. To, to, to say it succinctly, being gospel-centered is not a matter of preference. It's a matter of faithfulness to the scriptures. It's important. Um, I, I know that there could be some that would be tempted to look at this account and think, man, can't we, can't we just focus on the miracle? Like, why are we always searching for the gospel? Every week, there's the gospel tie-in. Why, why in every single text, right? Like, the, the, the thing's already about Jesus. Isn't that good enough? The answer to that, friends, is that we cannot come to the scriptures like so many came to Jesus, thinking that they knew what their greatest need was and just wanting him to meet that for them. We must come to the scriptures looking intently for what it is God is saying to us, knowing that he is aware in a way we can't possibly be of what our deepest need is. We have to let him set the pace. We have to let him tell us what this is about. And sometimes that takes a little more than just a a, a surface scratching. Sometimes what it requires is some digging, a willingness to go a little deeper. Now, with with that in mind, I I want to show you the precious truth that is undergirding all the other truths we've seen in this miracle. What I'm saying about needing to find and understand how every text of the Bible is a part of the overall redemptive arc of God's big story, I'm not saying that that means those other principles aren't important or that we don't learn from those and apply those. I'm not saying that at all. Those things are there and, and, and praise God for them. But we can't just stop there because then we'll end up in a works-based righteousness. Oh, okay, so I should be compassionate. I should be empathetic like Jesus. Okay, so I'm going to leave the sermon knowing I need to do better. Instead of being brought to the understanding that, uh, yes, I do need to do better, but in and of my own strength, I won't do better, and that means, again, I should find myself on my knees before Christ asking for his help. We, our hearts are bent. They are bent towards works-based righteousness. We are pre-programmed because of sin and the struggle of this world to see everything in terms of performance and how we can do it, doing it by our own strength. Uh, That's why Martin Luther said we got to preach the gospel all the time to the point where we're beating it in people's heads. Uh, 
he didn't hold punches back <laughs> oftentimes when he talked. So, uh, so let, me, let me show you what's underneath all this. So um, I'm, a little bit of this I'm, I'm bringing directly out of a commentary uh, as I'm laying this out for you. So the ancient Greek word for impediment in his speech, where it says it was loose, the imp- basically was, now he was able to talk, that impediment in his speech, that's mogalalon. That's the Greek word. And it's only used here in the New Testament by Mark. And it's a word that is used one other time, and that's in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And where we find that is in Isaiah 35, okay, verses 5 and 6. Here's what it says. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall, deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like deer, and the tongue of the dumb, and that's where it says mogalalon, they'll sing. For waters shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And so Mark wants us to know for sure by using this uncommon word for this speech impediment, this is without a doubt, this is a reference to Isaiah. He's pointing us to this prophecy, okay? He wants us to know the Messiah is here, that he's bringing all the benefits, the glory of his rule. Um, a commentator by the name of Lane says, Mark's use of an extremely rare word to describe the man's speech defect is almost certainly an allusion to Isaiah 35.5, which celebrates God as the one who came in order to unstop the ears of the deaf and to provide song for the man of inarticulate speech. Now, it gets, it gets even deeper. Okay, So here we have this connection to a messianic prophecy uh, in this very specific word usage. Let me read a little bit back. I'm just going to read you Isaiah 35, 4 through 7, just so we have the context around this use of the word mogalilon, okay? It says, starting in verse 4, Isaiah 35, Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the Areba. The scorched land will become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. Here's here's what we need to see, friends. This this miracle of, of Jesus unstopping this guy's ears and touching his tongue, it's not unique in its direct connection to the hope that we have in Jesus as Savior and Messiah. When you begin to think about the miracles of Jesus through this lens and you begin to think of his stated purpose of coming to preach the kingdom and repentance and redemption through him, when you begin to think and see through that lens, all of the miracles begin to take a different form, right? When you think about then the water into wine at the wedding of Cana, right? You begin to understand, well, it's not just about needing some more wine. The water pots were the ones holding water for ceremonial washing, which would have been tied to the Old Testament system of law. And when Jesus comes and turns that dirty, nasty water into wine, it is speaking to this greater revelation that new wine is coming, that his blood is going to do something that that ceremonial washing water never could fully do. It doesn't stop there. When he heals the sick, it's not just healing an infirmity there, but it's, it's hearkening again from Isaiah and other places, us understanding that there is a sin sickness that afflicts us. And so he's pointing to the reality of what's going to happen as Jesus' reign and rule is made full. When he casts out demons, 
It's not just about casting this demon out of this guy or, or, or out of this child. It's about showing Jesus' supreme authority over all the kingdom of darkness and that ultimately one day we will all be set free from slavery to sin and from all of the traps and lies and foolishness that the devil tries to use to pull God's people away from him. It's, sh it's showing us something. He's, he's foreshadowing. When he feeds the hungry, it's not just about feeding 4,000 people on a hillside or 5,000 people on a hillside. He is showing and pointing forward to that day when we will all be totally, completely free from the pangs of spiritual hunger that drive us to eat garbage and everything else trying to fill that God-shaped hole in us. Every miracle, every single time, it is undergirded by this one precious truth that the entirety of the scriptures is about. And for us to rejoice in God feeding people and rejoice in Jesus healing people and rejoice in his authority over demons, but not see it tied to this overall kingdom message and the hope of redemption, we miss the point. We can't miss the point. Praise God. This is the message. This is the pearl of great price. This is the treasure worth laying down everything else to obtain. That we can be forgiven of sin. That we can be saved, made righteous, and reconciled to God through the perfect life, sacrificial death, and glorious resurrection of Jesus. Because of Christ, we can receive grace instead of wrath. We can be called children of God instead of slaves to sin. And we can never receive these most precious of gifts by striving to earn them on our own. They are received by faith alone and trusting in Jesus and his gospel. Now, if you're paying close attention, you're remembering the prophecy I read you from Isaiah, you might be thinking, hold on. Those verses in Isaiah... They said, Behold, this was how it started. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come. But he will save you. But how does that work? If the vengeance of God and the recompense of God is coming, and we are guilty, when the recompense of God comes with his vengeance, how is it that we can be saved? The answer is that the vengeance and the recompense of God has come. All of the punishment that justice demanded for our iniquity, it was doled out. It has happened because God's vengeance was poured out upon Jesus on the cross. That's how he saved us. That he got in the way of the justice that we deserved so that we could receive mercy instead. God is holy. He could not let sin go unpunished, but he also was not willing to have us separated from him forever. And so he paid the price. He took the punishment we deserved. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Now what else? What else does this prophecy in Isaiah say will happen because of this one who will come? It says, Then the lame will leap like deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Areba. The scorched land will become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. Friends, this is the real answer right here. To our foolish tendency 
to think that we have heard the central truth about Jesus enough ways or enough times. The scorched land of hopelessness will, with, without God's grace, there is no... The scorched land, you know what that means? Scorched land, when, it, when it's to that point, it, it's hopeless, man. That's fallow ground. You're hit. You're not growing anything there. Give up. That's, that's, that's the picture being painted. But what we're seeing is that the scorched land of hopelessness, with, with God's grace, it, what does it say? It will become springs of water. What? Friends, the gospel, the gospel is the only ever-flowing wellspring where the water gets sweeter the more you drink it. There's all kinds of other counterfeit waters. There's all kinds of other troughs you can try to go and quench your thirst in. Every single one of them ends up bitter in the end. But every single time you come back and you drink of this spring that springs up out of the scorched land of our brokenness, that is the gospel. Every single time you drink of it, it's sweeter than the time before. Every single time you spend in prayer and meditation and the study of the scriptures and God by his wondrous grace and the power of his Holy Spirit illumines your heart to see yet again a facet of this gospel you never saw before. That water, it gets sweeter. And that's why we can never, ever presume to tire of hearing of this beautiful, central, precious crown jewel of the scriptures, which is the gospel of Christ. Come and drink the sweet water. And drink again and again and again. Hallelujah. And find yourself refreshed. The more we hear it, the more we meditate on it, the more we share it with others, the sweeter and the more precious it becomes to us. That's how this works. That's why we can never scorn the idea that every single time we open this Bible, that what we're looking for is the big story and all the little stories. Because that's what God is about. He's about us and him forever. And I'm so thankful that he is. And I hope you are too. Praise God. May we be a people with ears to hear and mouths ready to speak so we may share this pure, sweet water with a world that is dying of thirst. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for the beauty and the unique nature of the way you met this man. Thank you, Lord, that we can see your ability to look beyond the surface. We don't know exactly why you stuck your fingers in his ears. We don't know exactly why you spit on your finger and touched his tongue, God. But we know you know. And we know you know him, and you love him, and you met him right where he was at. And God, that means so much to us right now, because we know, as much as we try, there's gaps in our faith, there's gaps in our understanding, there's gaps in our faithfulness and obedience to you. All of us, Lord, we're trying to walk out this path of sanctification you've laid before us. And God, if you were not willing to come meet us where we're at, we would never make it to you. But thank you. We see your compassion and your mercy and that you know us, and you love us. We rejoice in that truth today. Lord, thank you that in this we're reminded of our need to have our ears opened to hear what it is you're speaking to us. Thank you, Lord, for the reminder that we need our tongues loosed 
to speak of the great and glorious truth of redemption found by grace through faith in Christ. Thank you. We see ourselves in this man. God, I pray for every single person that may hear this that has not yet had a fatha spoke over them, that they have not had their heart opened as Lydia's was, that they still are stuck, unable to hear, unable to really speak what needs to be spoken. God, I ask that you would move upon them by the power of your spirit. In Acts, it says you open Lydia's heart. God, we ask that we would yield our defenses, that we would lay down all of our foolish striving and, and attempts to do this on our own, and that we would receive the gift of grace and redemption and mercy. Thank you that you dispense grace liberally, that you're not stingy with it, that you'll find us, pursue us, get to us where we're at to give it. Thank you for that. Lord, thank you that we see in this text the beautiful truth that all of your truth is undergirded with your gospel, that we, with a little extra looking, we can see that this was pointing back to the prophecy of Isaiah, saying that you would come, saying that the lame would dance, that the mute would sing, and that the scorched land would become a spring. God, help us, please, help us to thirst for the sweet living water you provide. Lord, we confess our tendency to drink from other wells and to search out other springs. And God, we confess that we've been led into much foolishness and debauchery and sin because of it. But God, what we're stating right now, what we're asking for your help in is to stay out of that. We want to drink from the wells that you dig, the springs that you provide. For you are good. and You've proven that to us. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your gospel. Lord, I thank you that Peter wrote that even angels long to look into the depth, complexity, beauty, and magnificent nature of the gospel. God, may we have that same desire. We love you, and we worship you, and we exalt you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.